Her dark hair glistens in the sun as she stands in front of the crowd of mourners. The pastor has his hand on her shoulder and assures her of their ongoing support. Her husband's coffin stands before her, covered in flowers, the focal point of an entire town's grief. Tears trickle down her cheeks, but her eyes aren't red. Her lovely face, not flushed or blotched with grief, pressing up against her insides. All she has to do is keep up the pretense. Just a little longer. Everything is falling perfectly into place. And soon, she'll have everything she's ever wanted. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht. And you're listening to episode 123, The Murder of Leon Brits. Now it's my monthly tip about what to watch on CBS Justice, the home of true crime on TV. And from Saturday the 8th of July, you won't want to miss the season one premiere of the Black Widow Murders, shocking stories of calculating women who kill their partners to advance their own ends. From serial divorcees to career con artists, each episode explores a new and unique case, untangling the web of lies used to distract their victims. Watch it Saturdays and Sundays at 8pm on DSTV Channel 170, and Starsat 222 until the 23rd of July. And a huge thank you to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming, and for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you. Are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Machdalt Dievenhacher, Gabby, Belle Amory, and Kim Anderson for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout-out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think... You should do it. Please. And thank you. Kaba. 
upfront, I will tell you that I've gone back and forth on today's case a hundred times in my head. If you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you'll know that I have zero problem viewing female offenders in the same way I do male offenders. Many of the female offenders I talk about on this podcast are on here because they've killed their partners, or rather, had them killed. Because the MO with female intimate partner murders is usually very different from male intimate partner murders, in that women often don't commit the murders themselves. Also, almost without fail in such cases, there are claims of abuse from the female offender, which is very difficult to deal with, because in most cases there's no substantive proof. But that also doesn't mean the abuse didn't occur, because of the very nature of domestic abuse and coercive control. So, Today I've decided to just present the case to you and maybe delve a little into the possibilities, but for the most part, just let you decide what you think. Because if I go back and forth on this anymore, you won't have an episode at all. In researching today's case, I used a judgment from the bail appeal on the case from Safley, an episode of Heiskanuit's New Blut in Fleas series, as well as a book about this case by journalist Shawnee Kemp called Moot op Pofader, which is available in Afrikaans for purchase on Amazon. So, let's get into episode 123, The Murder of Leon Brits. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Sarita Kutsia was born on the 6th of September 1990. Although her father would accidentally record her birth date as the 6th of October 1990. She was the youngest of three siblings two girls and a boy. The Kutsia family dynamic was extremely turbulent, and in 1999 their lives would become even more difficult when Sarita's father passed away after being bitten by a spider and an infection that resulted from this. Sarita was at the man's bedside when he died, and his death would have a deep impact on her in many different ways. Her mother was now on her own to raise three children with limited finances, and the family would live in poverty for most of Surya's childhood. When Surya was 14, a chance encounter changed her life. She met Leon Brits, a 25-year-old man from Pofada. Leon Brits had been born in 1979. His family were long-time Northern Cape residents, and the young man and his brother Toki lived in Pofada, where his family owned a hotel. Leon had always been a shining star. He was head boy of his high school, did very well academically, and enjoyed sport too. He was the apple of his mother's eye, and had her perfectionist tendencies, which meant that he took to working in the hotel far easier than his brother did. Toki always knew the family business was not going to be for him, 
and he would study in a different field, marry and move away from Porfada as soon as he matriculated. The Brits' family was strong, though, and Leon stayed in the town of his birth and helped his parents to run the hotel. He knew he would one day take it over from them. At a social function one day, he laid eyes on Surieto Kutsia. Now, you've likely already picked up on the enormous age difference, and I'm not going to gloss over that, because it is pertinent. Leon was 11 years older than Surieta, and not just that, she was a minor when they met, and according to her, also when they started a sexual relationship, which was not long after. Surieta says that Leon lavished her with gifts and loaned her family money when they were down and out. He took her out to restaurants and other places she'd never even dreamed of. He was showing her a life she hadn't believed could be hers. Leon's family say that he was head over heels in love with Surieta from the day he met her and soon told his brother that she was the woman he wanted to marry. But there was one enormous problem, though. Sarieta was not a woman. She was a child. His family would later say that they'd believed that the couple were not engaged in sexual relations until Sarieta had turned 18, but it would later be revealed that this was not the case at all. Sarieta's school friends were in awe of the older man their beautiful friend was dating, but one would later say she'd noticed about a year into the relationship that Sarieta started wearing very baggy clothes to school, and then she was very upset for quite a while, but wouldn't say why, and she'd never quite been the same happy-go-lucky Sarieta after that, the woman said. Sarieta's explanation for this was something that Leon's family had said they'd had no idea had happened. She said that after her and Leon had become sexually active with, with one another, she'd fallen pregnant when she was 15 years old. She says Leon was very angry and sent her into a doctor's office far from Porfada on her own with cash to confirm the pregnancy. She came out with confirmation and additional news that there was not just one fetus, but two. She was carrying twins. Leon would have known very well that if it emerged that he'd impregnated her at the age of 15, he could be charged with statutory rape. So he insisted that she needed to terminate the pregnancy. Sarieta had resisted, but soon gave in to his demands and the termination was performed. She would later claim that Leona treated her extremely poorly during this time, not allowing her to rest after the procedure and threatening to harm her if she told anyone. Sarieta said that the procedure was painful, both emotionally and physically, and she would later be diagnosed with PTSD from this event. Of course, one has to wonder whether Sarieta's mother knew about any of this, and we still don't really know whether she did. Many would ask, after all was said and done, why the woman would have allowed her teenage daughter to date a man so much older than her. I guess only the woman herself can answer that question, 
But the power dynamic was undoubtedly skewed heavily in Leon's favor here, whether he intended it to be so or not. He had far more life experience, and he had money and means. All the things that neither Sarita nor anyone in her family had. Despite the rocky early years of their relationship, Sarita and Leon remained together, and in Sarita's matric year in 2008, she fell pregnant again. She says that Leon had once again insisted she get an abortion, but this time she'd flat out refused. So instead, in 2009, when Sarita turned 19, they married. Leon's brother and friends would later say that he'd been uncertain about whether marrying Sarita was the right thing to do. He'd had very specific ideas about what he wanted for his life, his family and his wife. And it seemed he was unsure about whether the young woman with the rather, with the rather turbulent past could actually meet those expectations. Leon and Sarita's first child, a daughter, was born shortly after they married, and within two years, Sarita was pregnant again, this time with twin boys. By now, Leon seemed to have settled into his role as a father. His father had passed away, and he'd bought his mother's share of the hotel so he could run it, and she'd moved into a retirement village in Pofada. After the birth of their sons, Leon and Sarita set about building a bit of an empire. Besides the hotel, Leon also had several other businesses, including two rental properties, a bottle store, a self-catering setup that serviced people visiting the mines in the area, and he'd also purchased a farm that bordered his aunt's and uncle's property 50 kilometers from Pofada. Sarita helped in these businesses, but she also started her own business, which supplied various items to the mines, and Leon helped her start this up. But he insisted she had to run it on her own, and she did that, very successfully. The couple also owned two of their own houses, which they split their time in, one in Pofada, close to the hotel, and the other in Marchant, an hour's drive from Pofada. Sarita and the children would spend weekdays in the house in Marchant so the children could attend school, and Leon stayed in Pofada to tend to his businesses there. Although this type of arrangement is not uncommon in families living in very rural areas where they have to make a plan to get their children to often far outlying schools, it does seem that the separation started to weigh on the Brits couple, and soon... They were living very separate lives. In 2017, Sarita's health took a sharp turn for the worst. She'd been diagnosed with cancer of the womb and had to have a hysterectomy. And then she was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and heart conditions and a wide range of allergies. She was eventually seeing four different specialists, all based in Johannesburg, and would need to travel there often once every two months, for treatment. She would soon have her health conditions mostly under control, but continued to need regular checkups, and this only meant additional time she was spending away from Leon, and the rift between them seemed to grow ever wider. 
When the couple were together, though, no one would know anything was wrong. The Brits couple were known as the glam couple of the area. Not only were they undoubtedly very wealthy, but they were also very attractive people. Sarieta especially turned heads wherever she went, with her long dark hair and striking green eyes. Employees at the hotel would say that Leon was not always happy with the attention Sarieta got, though, and he had very specific ideas about how she should dress and conduct herself, not wanting her to ever wear anything that was too revealing. Leon was a sharp businessman, and really good with money. Each of his properties had a safe on it, and he often kept wads of cash, Kruger rands, and diamonds in each. As is the case with anyone in business, he did sometimes get into disputes with either suppliers, business partners, or staff members. And in 2017, he started to tell those closest to him that he'd been receiving death threats. For the most part, Leon didn't really seem to take them very seriously, but the threats would continue. And I have to wonder, knowing what we know now, it's a plan that would eventually be put in place three years later, had actually already started in some form in 2017 already. Sarieta would eventually acknowledge that her marriage had been on rocky ground for many years. Besides the physical distance between the couple, she'd suspected that Leon was having an affair. She'd found some photographs on his phone that she claimed had led her to believe he was seeing someone else. Leon had denied this, and eventually the couple seemed to come to a mutual understanding and moved on from the event. What Leon didn't know, though, was that Sarieta herself had been unfaithful. It would eventually be proven that she'd had at least two romantic and sexual relationships outside of her marriage, the longest-lasting affair, and the one that would eventually form part of this case, started in 2019, when a new supplier started calling on her business, and she met a man who I'll call Mark. Now, there are several individuals involved in this case who, although they are named in the book and in other sources, I've chosen not to name. I do so because... Firstly, I can't imagine how difficult it must have been to have been caught up in this absolute nightmare of a situation in the first place, many through no fault of their own, but also to have their names rehashed and brought forward each time the case is discussed. Their identities are not really relevant, so I don't see any harm in using pseudonyms for them. Sarita and Mark's affair soon became pretty serious. She was alone with the children in Marchand throughout the week, so they spoke on the phone at least four times a day and texted regularly. Mark had just gotten out of his own rather toxic marriage and lived in Paris, so seeing each other was difficult. But Sarieta used her trips to Johannesburg for her medical appointments to see him. Only Sarieta didn't go on these trips on her own. Her sister and mother often accompanied her, and they would stay at Mark's house too, so they were clearly aware of the affair. Sarita had made it clear from when she first met Mark 
that she would only leave Leon when her children had finished school. But that would mean another eight years. And as the months went by and the affair progressed, Sarietta seemed to change her mind about this. On the occasions that she'd spoken about possibly divorcing Leon, she told Mark that she'd raised it with her husband before, but Leon had refused to divorce her. She said that he was adamant that divorce would have one of two outcomes for her. Either he would kill her and then kill himself, or he would ensure that she was financially crippled and lost custody of her children. Eventually, in early 2020, Sarietta told Mark that she needed him to help her. If Mark thought that she was going to ask him if perhaps she and her children could come and live with him to get away from Leon, he was mistaken. Instead, what Sarietta asked was whether he would kill her husband for her. Mark was horrified and told her that she had to be crazy. But Sarietta was absolutely serious, and she would prove it by asking Mark twice more, before in 2020, she eventually told him that he didn't need to worry about it. She'd found someone to help her. He was a school friend of her brother's, and according to her, he'd do anything for her. Mark would say that he tried time and again to get Sarietta to stop talking about this idea of killing Leon. He was never sure whether she was actually serious, or if it was just her anger talking, but he also never told anyone else what she'd asked him to do. At least, not at first. The man that Sarietta was referring to here was Jacques Van Feren. The 36-year-old was going through a rough period in his life. His wife had recently divorced him after she'd said that his drinking and marijuana use had made him impossible to live with. She'd moved his two children far away, and he hardly got to see them anymore. Jacques had also been injured at work and ended up losing his permanent position at the mine he'd worked at. He still got temporary placements every now and then, but it wasn't nearly enough to keep him going, and it definitely wasn't enough to pay the child support the court had mandated he pay. He was already two months behind, and his ex-wife was threatening him. He was at a braai in Marchant one night, when he reconnected with his friend's sister. He'd always thought that Surietta Brits was beautiful, but he said he'd seen her as a sister more than anything. She and Jacques shared a difficult upbringing. His father had been an alcoholic, and he'd watched him beat his mother on many occasions. As a child, he'd always felt powerless to help, and his father had died before he could ever confront him about his violence and abuse. Soon after he reconnected with Surietta at that braai, she texted him. She asked if he would do her a favor. Of course, he answered. What did she need? Her response was that she needed someone to do her dirty work for her. Jacques asked if she wanted someone beaten up, half-jokingly, but the very serious reply came from Surietta that she actually wanted someone dead. Her husband, Leon, to be precise. 
Sarita went on to tell him that Leon had been abusing her for many years, both emotionally and physically. She said that he threatened to kill her and that there was no way out for her except for him to die. Jacques quickly overcame his initial shock, which was replaced by fury when he read that Sarita was being abused. He told her outright that there was no way he could do it himself. He could see if he could find someone to do it, though. Sarita agreed that that would be fine, and by the end of that first text conversation, they'd agreed on a price. 400,000 rand. Half would be paid up front, and half after the task was completed. Around this time, of course, the COVID pandemic hit. The schools closed and the Brits' businesses were under pressure. One of the Brits' employees, a 21-year-old girl we'll call Lily, spent the hard lockdown period living with the couple to help the children and also because she didn't really have anywhere safe to go herself. She would become very close with Sarieta and would play a pivotal role in the case going forward. Within days of receiving confirmation from Jacques that he would help her, Sarieta had purchased a burner phone from a shop near an informal settlement near Marchant. She would use this phone to communicate with Jacques and also, crucially, one or two times with other people. Jacques van Feren had initially told Sarieta he was going to take the deposit she gave him and use it to hire two hitmen in Mahikeng. She paid the deposit over two payments. The first was 70,000 rand in cash that she gave to him personally at, at a prearranged meeting place on the side of the road, and the second payments were sent disguised as a gift hamper through young Lily, who lived close to where Jacques did. Lily had no idea that there was money in the package she'd passed on, but Sarieta had sent her some very strange messages telling her that if anyone asked about the package, she should say it was a gift with chocolates and other spoilments in it. The young woman would only find out much later that she'd unwittingly been party to a murder. She idolised Surietta, almost as a mother figure, but most certainly as a big sister, and wouldn't question much she'd asked her to do. Although Jacques had claimed that he was going to hire two strangers to commit the murder, he decided it would be better to involve someone he knew and trusted so that he could be sure they didn't run away with the money, or worse yet, go to the police. The first person who popped into his head was his old friend, Enrich Williams. Jacques and Enrich had been friends since 2008 when they'd met in college and they'd worked on the mines together as well. They still socialised regularly, even though Jacques no longer worked at the mines, and he'd spent many nights being regaled by his friends' stories of his abalone trafficking through Africa. Jacques wouldn't call Enrich a criminal as such, but he was the closest thing to it he could think of. He also knew that Enrich was always money-hungry. The man earned a good salary at a full-time job, but also ran two side businesses, and was always up for a new deal. It hadn't taken much to convince Enrich, really, especially when he'd heard how much money was on offer. 
Jacques told his friend that he didn't want to be present when the murder took place, though. He admitted he simply didn't have the stomach for it. But Leon was a large man, and there was no way Enric could do this on his own either. Enric would recruit a young man he'd worked with called Amantle Bereki. The man was in his early twenties and had just completed his NTU at college. He planned to study further in engineering and earned his income in the meantime, raising livestock. Amantle was more sceptical than Enric had been, but he too was soon swayed by the promise of a cut of 400,000 rand. There was also the added benefit that Sarieta wanted the murder to look like a home invasion gone wrong, so they could take whatever they wanted from the safe, and the men were assured that there was always cash, guns, and maybe even Krugerrand stored in there. In the days of planning, Sarieta proved to have put quite a lot of thought into how she wanted this to go down. She told Jacques the men should use unlicensed weapons and an unlicensed vehicle. They agreed that Jacques should not be present. He wasn't well known in Pofada, but it was too risky if anyone that knew her brother spotted him, as they may have seen him at a social event. Jacques would claim that initially, Sirieta had wanted the murder to happen while she and the children were in the house, to detract attention from her involvement. Jacques had been horrified at the idea that Leon should be killed with his children in the house, and told Sarieta that if that's how she wanted it to happen, he would give her money back, and he wanted nothing to do with it. She quickly backtracked and agreed that they could find another way. They both agreed that the murder should take place at the house in Porfada, and during the week, as there was less chance of accidental witnesses. Sarieta said that she would arrange for Leon to be alone at the house and sent him video of the house layout, told him which sliding doors were left open at the back of the property and even indicated which couch the men should hide behind so that they could surprise Leon when he entered. The Brits family had several bull terrier dogs and they were known to be protective of the family, but Sarieta said they had one Achilles heel and that was food. If the men went with a big pack of sausages, they could easily distract the dogs, and there would be no problem to them at all. Jacques had agreed that as soon as they received the balance of the deposits, they would carry out the job. So on the 5th of October 2020, when Jacques received the package from the unwitting Lily, Sarieta had assumed that everything would be put in place and the murder would be carried out. When that didn't happen because Jacques simply couldn't wrangle the men in time, Sarieta was furious. She texted Jacques that he needed to think very carefully about what he was doing, because if he was trying to con her, she could easily have him and his whole family wiped out. Jacques was horrified. The woman he saw as a sister had suddenly changed from being sweet, kind and pleading for help into someone who was now threatening his children's lives. He quickly got on the phone to Enrich and told him they needed to get the job done ASAP. In the hours that followed, the men gathered what weapons they could find, a baseball bat and a knife, 
and Enrich brought gloves and lighter fluid to burn their clothes and any other evidence after the crime was committed. Jacques texted Sarieta to let her know that they were ready to go on the 6th, but then there was a glitch. Leon's brother, Toki, had unexpectedly decided to visit him. They would have to wait. Ordinarily, Toki would visit only for the day. He and his brother often purchased items together across the country, and he would go out and fetch them and then bring them through to his brother. On this occasion, he'd also gone to sell some of the Kruger rands they'd purchased together as the gold price had just gone up, and he wanted to bring the rest back to Leon. Toki ended up sleeping over at the Porfider house that night, and, unbeknownst to him, Leon was given 24 hours reprieve by his would-be killers. The brothers enjoyed a bra that night after visiting their mom in the retirement village. She'd been diagnosed with dementia and was quickly losing her faculties. At times, she didn't even recognize her sons. Toki would later say that although Leon never drank alcohol, that night he'd sipped on a brandy and they chatted late into the night before retiring to bed. Early the next morning, Toki bid his brother goodbye and hit the road. He had no idea that he would be turning around and heading straight back in just a few hours. Toki noticed something quite strange that morning, which he'd only reflected on later. He had a decent relationship with his sister-in-law, but they certainly didn't text every day. And that morning, Sarieta texted him several times to wish him a safe journey and check on his progress. He'd planned to stop halfway and get new license plates for his wife's vehicle, a white VW Polo, and also to fit new tyres onto it. And he eventually got so irritated with Sarieta's constant messaging that he told her this in a voice note and then threw his phone on the passenger seat and ignored the rest of the beeps. While Sarieta was trying to ascertain the whereabouts of her brother-in-law that morning, records would later show that she was simultaneously also using her burner phone to keep Jacques updated. He'd left Katu early that morning with Enrich and Amantle in his silver VW polo. They'd pulled into a petrol station en route to await Sarieta's go-ahead. Eventually, around 6am, she told Jacques that Leon had left for the hotel. The men could make entry into the house and wait. She would give it some time, and then she'd set her plan into motion. Now, some sources have claimed that one of Leon's employees had made the call that got him to go back to his house that morning, but this has never made sense to me, because none of his employees were ever implicated in the murder and Sarieta herself would eventually admit that she'd made the call. Around 10am, she phoned Leon and told him that a neighbour had called to say that their dogs had gotten out the yard and they were in the street. Leon sighed. This was a regular adventure for their dogs, but they had gotten into trouble by biting a passerby the last time they'd done it, so he agreed he'd head back and secure them on the property. As soon as he got word from Sarieta, Jacques had driven to the house and dropped the two men off. He then left Porfada and waited one town over. Enrich and Amantle 
had entered the house just as they'd been instructed to. They didn't even see the dogs, they said, but they'd spread the sausages around just in case. Then they'd taken their places behind the large brown couch and waited. After three hours of waiting, Enrich and Amantle were getting antsy. Almost tellingly, the more criminally experienced Enrich had not brought his cell phone with him, but Amantle had. Enrich hadn't bothered to warn his companion about the possibility of his cell phone being tracked and actually instructed him to phone Jacques and tell him to come pick them up. He was tired of waiting. Jacques told Surieta the men were getting impatient, and she sent a text to Leon, pushing him to get to the house as the neighbours were phoning about the dogs again. Just after 10am, the men heard Leon's bucky pull into the driveway. He walked around back and entered through the sliding door. As soon as he walked past them, they sprung out and attacked him from behind. But things would not be as simple as the men had thought. Leon Brits fought back ferociously. He was almost two metres tall and weighed significantly more than either man, and the struggle inside the house soon led outside as Leon tried to escape. Enrich ran behind him and with all his might swung the baseball bat at Leon's head. Leon stumbled to the ground just long enough for the two to pounce on him with a knife. He would incur eight stab wounds and multiple defensive injuries, before eventually the two men manually strangled him to death. Enrich took his wallet and the safe keys from Leon's pocket and instructed Amantle to put Leon's body in the swimming pool. Amantle found a dog chain laying on the ground, wrapped it around Leon's neck and dragged him into the swimming pool. The men spent several minutes raiding the safe. They took firearms that they could easily conceal, several Krugerrands, a stack of cash and diamonds. Then they asked Jacques to come and fetch them. A few minutes later, Surieta would get the text she'd been waiting for. Two words. It's done. With this, Surieta got into her bucky, which she had loaded with paint that Leon had previously asked her to bring with her to Porfada, she slowly started the drive to their house. After 11am that morning, the manager at the hotel, a woman who'd been friends with the Brits family for many years, received a hysterical phone call from Surieta Brits. She said that someone had murdered Leon at the house. From that point, Surieta Brits would make several more phone calls, including one to police and a few to Toki, who initially ignored her calls. She also flagged down a passing neighbour and asked him to phone police, saying she didn't know if someone was still inside the house and her husband had been shot. In the hours that followed, the police arrived and Leon's brother received the news that his brother had been murdered. He'd been fitting the new tyres onto his wife's car when he'd been informed and had turned around and driven straight back. He and the hotel manager, who'd been the first on the scene after Surieta, would both say that the house seemed very orderly for a robbery. The only place that appeared to be ransacked was the safe. There were valuables laying out in the open everywhere, 
and nothing else had been taken. The news of Leon's murder spread like wildfire through the small town. People rushed to Sarieta's side, bearing sugar water and tranquilizers for the shock. Porfada had no experience with crimes such as this. It simply did not happen there. But it had. And a man who'd been one of the cornerstones of their community was now dead. Almost immediately, the rumor mill started up, aided by social media, where people posted wild allegations of farm murders, even creating descriptions of perpetrators that, that didn't exist and claiming that five people had been seen fleeing the scene. Employees at the Brits' businesses were soon being implicated, and Puff Ada police had to eventually step in and warn residents that unsubstantiated allegations could not only damage the case, but also lead to prosecution of those making the claims. The social media madness then abated slightly, but no one could stop the whispers on street corners and on porches, or the groups of farmers banding together, readying their guns to go and hunt down the perpetrators themselves. As one of the last people known to have seen Leon alive, his brother Toki was quickly called in to provide a statement, and he soon realized that police had done their homework, and he may be considered more than just a witness. Talkie Brits had just experienced one of the greatest tragedies of his life, but it was about to be made far worse. In the weeks and months after his brother's murder, he would at various points be told that he was the prime suspect in the case. Police claimed that they'd received information that he and Leon had argued about money and their inheritance. They'd been told that on previous visits to the Brits' home, items had disappeared and it was believed that Toki had stolen them. The man was horrified and the suspicion didn't stop with the police. Even members of the community started to believe he might have had something to do with it. A man called Rion, who'd installed almost all of the CCTV cameras around town, had immediately set to work looking at footage from cameras he knew were around the area to see if he could spot the suspects. When Toki heard this was happening, he'd gone in to view the CCTV footage with the others. Rion had almost physically pushed him out of the room. At the time, Toki took support from Sarieta as he complained about how the police were treating him. She sympathized and often even said she would step in and get him a lawyer to help him. He would only discover later that it had been Sarieta all along that had been feeding the police allegations about him to draw their attention his way. Rion, the CCTV man, would become a real unsung hero in this case. The man spent hours tracking each piece of CCTV footage in Porfada, painstakingly watching and noting timestamps, car descriptions, anything suspicious. And his hard work soon paid off. He was able to identify a VW Polo, dropping two individuals off in front of Leon's house just after 6am that morning. He then tracked the Polo through town and saw where the driver stopped at a shop to buy a cool drink. CCTV from that shop was able to provide a photo fit of a man who was unidentified at that point. 
Sarita Brits was very interested in the CCTV footage as well. She sat with Rian while he looked at the footage, even asking if she could get a copy for herself. When he spotted the VW Polo, he would later say that Sarita's head had fallen into her hands. He thought that she was overwhelmed at the sight of the people who'd killed her husband. She was, of course, overwhelmed, but by something else entirely. Shortly after she'd viewed that CCTV footage, she sent Jacques a message from her burner phone saying that they had footage of his car. He panicked, firstly because he'd gone against Sarieta's instructions that he should not be in Porfada, but also because he thought he was about to be identified. Sarieta reassured him that the cameras weren't high-res enough to capture his registration number, but he needed to lie low. The pair would meet up one more time. Jacques told Sarieta that she needed to stop using the burner phone and get rid of it. He also wanted to know about the rest of the money. She said she couldn't get it for a few more days because she didn't want to draw attention to herself. They met up on the side of the road far out of town, and Sarieta handed over her burner phone. Enrich and Amantle were in the car when the phone handover happened. Sarieta had curiously peered over Jacques' shoulder into the car, but the men had dropped their heads to hide their faces. She would later say that she'd caught a glimpse of Enrich's face before he did. Toki soon became suspicious of his sister-in-law. His brother's murder simply did not add up, and her behaviour after his death made his skin crawl. After breaking the news to her children that their father was dead, Sarieta Brit seemed to transform overnight. Neighbours reported loud parties at the Marchand home, Sarieta riding around on her motorbike in what they deemed inappropriate outfits. She'd got a tattoo and started smoking cigarettes openly in public, all things Leon would not have agreed with. She would provide several statements to police in which she gave her own opinions about who could be responsible for her husband's death. She told them that her marriage was perfectly fine. They argued like any couple, but they were happy, and she was distraught at her husband's murder. She was a little more distraught, it seemed, when she discovered that although she'd been the executor of Leon's estate in his will, Due to the circumstances surrounding his death, that role had been placed in the hands of an attorney, and any estate finalisation was to be put on hold until the investigation was complete. Sarita suddenly found herself running all of the businesses on her own, and complained to anyone who'd listen how run off her feet she was, and then, she says, the threats began. The details around the threats Sarieta was receiving were quite interesting, but how she twisted them was too. She had started to receive threatening text messages, and they were indeed from the people who'd killed her husband, but the nature of the threats was different from what she'd told people, including police. She'd said that she believed the people who'd killed her husband were coming for her next, and essentially they were threatening... Exactly that, but it was because she hadn't yet paid them the other half of their money. Of course, she left that part out. 
Sarietta hired two bodyguards for her and her children during this time. After a few days, she fired one and kept the other. The man soon ingratiated himself into the Brit's family and was heard disciplining Leon's children as though they were his own. Although he was supposed to be in the household as a hired professional, he and Sarietta began calling each other by pet names. He would stay by her side throughout the investigation and remained attached to her beyond that too. It wasn't just Surietta receiving threats though. Toki was too. In fact, after one particularly rough grilling by police, he'd received a text message threatening his and his entire family's lives if he didn't stop digging into Leon's murder. Although it would never be proven, this threat seemed cleverly orchestrated by Sarietta. She'd already been planting doubt in the minds of everyone around Toki about his innocence and telling them that she believed his next move was going to be to take over the running of his mother's finances so that he could steal from her. When the threat to him, his wife, children and mother came through to his phone, one of the first things he did was arranged for his mother to be moved out of her retirement home and into one closer to his house, so that he could be sure she was safe. It was an entirely understandable move on his side, but it played perfectly into Sarieta's scheme. See, she said, he's pretty much kidnapping his own mother for her money. Sadly, Leon and Toki's mother's dementia was so advanced by this stage that she couldn't even be informed of her son's murder. She would attend his funeral, but had no idea who was being mourned. While Sarietta Britz was scheming, hundreds of kilometres away, Jacques van Feren was spiralling out of control. In the days after Leon's murder, he fell deeper into depression and couldn't believe what he'd done. He'd also had the added problem of Enrich becoming antsy about the balance of payment. Sarietta had already made it clear that she was not to be trusted, and now Enrich was also threatening him if he didn't make sure Sarietta paid up. Knowing that his VW Polo had been seen, he no longer drove it and left it parked at a friend's house. Instead, he got on his motorcycle and decided to go out to visit his sister in Ceres. They'd always had a close relationship and he needed a few days away to clear his mind, he decided. In the meantime, the police investigation had escalated. The home invasion and employee involvement theories had soon been discarded. For Brigadier Dick Duval, who was put in charge of the case, Toki remained a strong suspect, but he wasn't prepared to close off his line of sight. Seeing the VW polo on the CCTV footage had strengthened Duval's suspicions that Toki had been involved, but they were soon able to determine that the man who'd gotten out of the vehicle was not Toki. Duval, who'd famously arrested Don Steenkamp, who as a teenager murdered his mother, father and sister, had a similar feeling about this case. Just as the Steenkamp boy had tried to frame his crime as a farm murder, but certain tells had spoken to the involvement of someone close to the victims, 
Leon's murder screamed of personal involvement too. He just had to figure out which personal connection he needed to be looking at. In series, Jacques Van Feren's sister was surprised but pleased to see him. Her brother looked terrible, though, and she hoped that a few days with her could get him back on his feet. Of course, she had no idea he was hiding a deep and very dark secret. On the first night with his sister, Jacques had crashed his motorcycle. He was concussed and had slight injuries, but his bike was in far worse shape and no longer rideable. On his second night with his sister, Jacques couldn't take it any longer, and he did what so many inexperienced criminals do. He spilled the beans. His sister sat in shock as he explained that he'd done something really bad and that he was responsible for arranging the murder of Leon Britz. After recovering from her initial shock, Jacques' sister took action. She said that he first needed to tell their mother, and then, the very next morning, she would put him on a bus back, and he should go and consult with the lawyer in Uppington, and then go hand himself over to police. Jacques agreed. He had to choose the lesser of three evils now. He was either facing Sarieta, facing Enrich, or facing the police. He'd take his chances with the police, he thought. He simply wanted to unburden his conscience. Unfortunately for Jacques, Dick Duval was already on his trail. Duval had been on the road overnight following up other leads when he'd received a tip-off that the man he was looking for was in Sirius. He remained about half an hour behind Jacques, but he was able to track him down to the bus stop where he was waiting with his sister to board the bus. He was arrested and charged with the murder of Leon Britz. It didn't take much for Jacques to unburden himself entirely. At first, the police were only asking about the two men he dropped off. In doing some background on Jacques, they discovered that he knew the Kutsia family and therefore would have at least known of the Brits family. They figured that perhaps he'd heard through the grapevine that there was a lot of money to be had at the Brits' home, and he'd orchestrated the robbery. Duval was still unconvinced of this theory, though, and when Jacques had provided Enric's information, and then asked if they'd like to know who the mastermind was, Duval's suspicions were confirmed. Jacques van Feren would eventually enter into a plea deal with the state. He provided a full confession and pointed out all of the pertinent scenes. He also agreed to plead guilty. In exchange, he would receive a sentence of 25 years with five years suspended. This meant that he would have the opportunity for parole far earlier than if he'd received a life sentence, and he would have a determinate sentence – rather than being under the auspices of the Department of Correctional Services for the rest of his natural life. As part of the plea deal, he would also testify against his co-accused, Enric Williams and Amant Leberecki. And of course, the mastermind he just named for the first time, Sirieta Britz. Sirieta had not been surprised that she was named a suspect. In the days after Leon's murder, she'd been told as much by Duval in a written letter delivered to her. She'd taken up the services of an attorney at that time, 
and complained to Toki that now she was the one being railroaded. Toki, by this time, firmly believed that she'd been involved in his brother's murder, but played along. He also believed she was behind the threats he'd received, and he preferred to stay in her good books until she was arrested. Sarieta, it seemed, had been expecting her arrest. She'd already hired a full-time carer for her children and laid out instructions for their care. She'd placed her business on hold, a move she would later claim was done out of desperation, but may well have been more tactical than anything. The business and its assets were all in her name. If it appeared to be in trouble, she may have thought she could use that in a possible bail application, and she would indeed do that. She focused all of her energy on the hotel and Leon's businesses at that point, but even that may have had a very tactical reason behind it. It would emerge that in the months before his death, Leon Brits was getting ready to sell the hotel. In fact, he was desperate to sell it. He told staff that the nature of the business was not conducive to being the type of father and husband he wanted to be, and he wanted to move the family to the farm he'd purchased outside of Porfada and slow his lifestyle down. It seemed that this was Leon's last attempt at saving his marriage, and despite being a shrewd businessman, he was desperate enough to do so that he'd slashed the price tag on the hotel by 50% just before he died. The prospective buyer had been shocked and keen to finalise the deal, and then Leon was killed, and nothing could move out of his estate until his death had been investigated. Sarieta's sudden focus on the hotel could likely have been her way of ensuring she kept the hotel as a viable sale option to ensure she could still dispose of it easily when the investigation was concluded. She likely had absolutely no interest in the hotel or its success, but she did have an interest in being able to liquidate that asset as soon as she could. Enrich Williams was arrested in a sting operation on his home the day after Jacques was taken into custody. He denied any involvement in the murder, saying that Jacques had asked him to participate, but he turned him down. He claimed it had been Jacques and Amantle who'd killed Leon. He did provide police with Amantle's address, but the young man had fled to Mahikeng in the interim, and it would take another few weeks before he was arrested. Sarieta Brits had perhaps thought that Jacques would protect her, and since she'd never actually met Enrich and Amantle, perhaps she even thought that they wouldn't be able to pin the mastermind role on her. But on the 19th of March 2021, all of those bubbles would burst, when five police cars arrived at her home in Marchant, and Dick Duval placed her under arrest for the murder of her husband. Leon Britz's family was horrified. They'd all but convinced themselves, in large part thanks to Sarieta's lies, that Toki was responsible. And now, they were suddenly faced with a brand new villain to contend with. The wolf in sheep's clothing, who'd remained among them. Cried at her husband's funeral, comforted her grieving children, and posted beautiful dedications to her lost love on social media. Initially, Sarieta denied any involvement, 
but the evidence was clearly stacking up against her. With Jacques' testimony, police could use cell phone records to link Sarieta to Jacques and Jacques to Enrich and Amantle. When Sarieta was arrested, young Lily had also come forward to admit to police that after Leon's death, Sarieta had told her that if anyone asked about the package she'd sent for Jacques, she should say it was for her, and she should also say that there were no problems at all in the Brits' marriage. Others also came forward, including Sarieta's boyfriend, Mark, and provided statements about how Sarieta had tried to influence their testimony about certain events. With her claiming innocence, Leon's family, who really didn't want to believe she could be guilty, continued to stand by her. His aunt and uncle simply couldn't fathom that the young woman they'd watched grow up and blossom with their nephew could possibly have murdered him. Sadly, Dick Duvall would never see the case he'd worked so hard on come to trial. In April 2021, he contracted COVID-19 and was admitted to hospital, and the following month, he lost his battle against the virus. His colleagues, though, were ready to ensure that justice would be done. Bail applications were heard for everyone except Jacques, who decided not to apply, and Sarieta was denied bail, while Enrich and Amantle were granted it. Sarieta attempted to appeal the bail decision, but this too was turned down. She tried to claim that her businesses would suffer, her children would be left without care, and that her own health was so bad that, in her own words, she could die any day. But the state was able to prove that this was not true, and the judge said that she'd clearly tried to mislead the court. Soon, Sarieta seemed to recognize that she was in a very difficult position. She'd hired a private investigator before she was arrested, ostensibly to identify her husband's killers, but actually, it seemed she just wanted someone to tell her what the police might know. She'd hired a man named Bushy Engelbrecht, who spent many years with the SAPS, and the seasoned detective soon figured out that something was awry with Sarieta. After losing her bail application, Sarieta had decided to appoint new counsel for her trial. She wanted Barry Rue, famed defense attorney of Oscar Pistorius. Bushy put them in contact with one another, but gave her a warning. Barry did not represent liars. If she wanted his services, she would need to play open cards with him. And finally, Sarieta Brits did just that. Or at least as open as her cards appeared to have ever been. At her next court appearance, those present were shocked when her attorney told the judge that his client had entered into a plea agreement with the state and she was going to plead guilty. Every person who'd been holding on to the hope that Sarita was not involved in Leon's murder had their hopes dashed in that moment. Through tears, Sarita Brits would plead guilty to murder and robbery with aggravated circumstances. In exchange, she would receive 25 years for the murder and 10 years for robbery to be served concurrently. She, too, would have the same opportunity as Jacques at a far earlier possibility of parole than if she'd received a life sentence. But it would be her plea statements that would be even more shocking. 
In it, she detailed the years of abuse she claimed she'd suffered at the hands of Leon. She spoke of the pregnancy termination he'd allegedly forced her to have and said that she'd also been physically, emotionally and sexually abused by him throughout their marriage. She said that although she now realized that she had other options available to her, when she arranged for him to be killed, it had honestly felt like her only way out. After her sentencing, Sarieto would write a long letter to Heskenwert magazine, which was published. In it, she again detailed the abuse she said she suffered at the hands of her husband and reiterated that she understood what she had done was not the right thing and called it the worst mistake of her life. Sarieta's family continued to stand by her, and P.I. Bushy Engelbracht had also remained in contact with her. Her children have forgiven her, she says, and that is the most important thing to her. In a strange twist, which Dick Duvall may have been wryly smiling at if he was looking down on it, Sarieta would make contact with Don Steenkamp while in prison. The men in women's prison at the centre she was reminded to have a common space where, although they are physically separated, the offenders can speak through a fence. Sarieta is alleged to have struck up a conversation with the young man and sought advice on how she could acquire a laptop so that she could start studying while in prison. Enrich and Amantle would go to trial, and their defence teams would do their best to defend against the evidence before them, but with their alibis failing them, cell phone records linking them, and Jacques and Sarieta's testimony, and a mountain of circumstantial evidence, there was very little even the best defence lawyer could do. Both men were found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. So there you have the facts. And Sarieta Brits is either a very cold and calculated killer who believed she could get away with murder and reap the benefits of not having to go through a difficult divorce where she may lose the lifestyle she'd become accustomed to, or she is a woman who was pushed to the edge by an abusive relationship she saw no way out of. For me, I can't bring myself to fit her entirely into either of those categories. She seemed to be everything at once. Vulnerable, calculated, very scheming. And also, very clearly at some point in her life, the victim of some pretty terrible stuff. So how much of that made her what she was, and how much had guided her hand? Or was she just calculating all along? Who knows? And maybe it doesn't matter. It certainly doesn't matter to Leon Britz's family. They still find it hard to believe that Leon did any of what Sarieta claimed. Maybe they're right. And maybe they're wrong. Because abusive people are almost never known as that by everyone they know. In fact, almost always, we hear, I couldn't believe he'd done that. Or, I can't believe he was capable of that. That's what they said about Sarieta, too. And maybe that's where we find ourselves. In that mix of life, 
where half of us is made up of our experience and the other half is made up of all the indefinable stuff. The things people never know about us. Our secrets and our darkest desires. And somewhere in that messed up mix of humanity, a man lost his life. Three children will grow up without a father. A family has lost their loved one. And a woman ponders each day on the biggest mistake of her life. And precisely which one that may have been. Leon Brits. Rest gently. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.